Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Giese, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast studio in Schenectady, New York. We open the first podcast of September with another fine show. Albany football coach Greg Catuzzo joins me later to preview the Great Dane season. And John Paul Morosi of MLB Network and NHL Network comes on to talk baseball and a little hockey. We saw an exciting race in the Traverse Stakes last Saturday as Essential Quality edged Midnight Bourbon by Neck to win the race. And to talk about that is the man who covered the race for the Daily Gazette. News coverage you see every day in uh, the paper and online at dailygazette.com is Mike McGadden. Mike, uh, welcome back to the podcast. And uh, we almost had your sister on the podcast because she picked Midnight Bourbon. <laughs> yeah, it didn't quite. It was kind of difficult to arrange because we were at King's Tavern and. Um, I was outside and the door was locked and so, <laughs> so we got her pick in there anyway and she actually did her, her horse did better than mine did too so I, maybe I should have listened to, to her opinion on the on the Travers itself she she played uh, Midnight Bourbon across the board and he paid four bucks to place and 330 to show so he and and my horse, keep me in mind, finished off the board. So I, I guess I should need to start listening to her a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about the race. I mean, I, you know, I watched it uh, in the office. It was a pretty good race. I mean, it was a, you know, they're going back and forth there coming down the stretch. It really was. And it was a typical essential quality um, race uh, for two uh, for two reasons. One, he won. <laughs> he never loses. The only loss he's ever had was by a length in the uh, Kentucky Derby. And the other one... And the other thing is, is it was very close. He, he always wins by short margins. He, he's kind of a grinder. Um, he goes after horses that are in front of him, but then when he passes them, he, he doesn't. He's not inclined to blow them away. So um, you're usually going to see an exciting finish when essential quality runs. Um, I will say that that the, the Travers result, the, the margin of victory, was consistent with how the whole day went as far as the graded stakes were concerned. Um, the, the stars that, that were on parade on Traverse Day all showed up, and they all pretty much won, but it was all close. And, and the only one who really had it easy was, you know, relatively speaking, was Gamine in the ballerina, sprinter, female sprint champion from last year. She won by length and three quarters. Everything else was head, neck, half length, neck, and neck. So we saw some really, really good stuff, but in most cases, um, the stars won. Uh, the, the races that they were supposed to. I already mentioned Gamine. Um, Jackie's Warrior beat Life is Good by a neck in the Allen Jerkins. Latruska, who's the leader of the older female dirt route division, you know, two-term type races, longer distances. She won by half a length, but she had a cavalry charge of three horses that she had to fend off right at the wire. Um, Gufo won by a neck over Japan and the Sword Dancer. And uh, the one that everybody was talking about, oh, no, which yeah. was a head <laughs> head uh, margin, was Yaupon beating Frenzy Fire in the Forgo. And um, when we say he won by a head, he was lucky he still had his head <laughs> attached to his body to to get that margin because Frenzy Fire for you know several strides right before the wire, starting at the 16th pole, suddenly decided uh, he was to the right of Yaupon um, that he was going to just start biting him. And he, he he turned his head over, 
reached over and tried and tried several times, at least a half a dozen times, to bite uh, Yaupan as they were, you know, dueling uh, side by side there to the wire. And you don't see this very often. Uh, the the term for it in horse racing is savaging, which is pretty appropriate. Um, these horses sometimes, especially the males. Um, you know, they're, they're sort of like a herd mentality where they're trying to be the dominant, you know, alpha male in the in the herd. And if that means, you know, biting somebody, then that's, <laughs> that's the way you, I've never seen it live like that before. I've seen photos and, and some videos over the years. Um, but the, the fact that he, he sustained this behavior for such a, you know, a good three, four seconds there was really what was um, remarkable remarkable about it you know they, every once in a while you hear about a horse trying to bite another one when they're next to each other in a race but he just kept going at it like uh he just missed the bridle he, you know he could have ripped ricardo santana right out of the saddle and uh credit to santana and um Yaupan, they basically kind of ignored it and just kept about their task and a lot of people think that frenzy fire would have won the race if he hadn't you know started goofing off like that and you know jose ortiz did everything he he could to try to yank the horse's head back, but to no avail. And just thankfully, nothing really bad happened unless you were betting on Frenzy Fire and, and believe that he should have won that race if he just didn't act like an idiot at the end there. And, uh, you know, it probably cost him the victory. What um, but back to the Travers a little yeah. bit. Um, you know, Central Quality really kind of elevated himself uh, to the top of the male um, three-year-old division a while back, you know, per, by winning the Belmont, and, and then he won the Jim Dandy also by a short mar margin. And um, the Travers win really just solidified, um, it, you know, his standing at the top of that division. And um, don't be surprised if we don't see him again until the Breeders' Cup Classic because uh, trainer Brad Cox said um, one of the options that they're going to look at hard is is not even racing him between the Travers and the, and the Classic and just training him up to it. Now you wrote in uh, the follow-up that Travis could be an interesting uh, Breeders' Cup uh, race with um, essential quality probably Nick's go. Yeah, and they're stable mates, and they're just a couple stalls down from each other. Nick's go won the Whitney, of course, earlier in the meet, and he's clearly the leader of the older dirt route division, and then his stable mate, essential quality, is the leader of the three-year-olds, and they're both going to be in the classic, and it's going to be interesting to see how they – fair against each other the classic should be good i mean there's going to be some other good um tough players in there as well but um as brad cox said um uh they're both great horses and and you'll be able to tell which one is which because um um nick's go has a tendency to run on the front end and essential quality is kind of more of a stalker who's you know several lengths back and then kind of makes his his grinding run to the front uh you know in the stretch so um that would be a pretty cool matchup though for sure uh i want to get back to the uh <laughs> the biting incident my sure. couple questions with frenzy fire if frenzy fire ends up winning that race with the biting going on he he gets disqualified right well he didn't actually make contact at any point i mean he might have brushed the bridle at um but you know that's hard to say. I think he would have had to do more. The fact that he was trying to bite him but didn't actually get him, um, I, if he had finished in front of Yaupan in that circumstance, I, I don't think anything would have happened if there was no contact made. If there was, then you, you clearly, um, you know, you have grounds for disqualification. It would be like if, you know, a horse 
banged into another horse, you know, regardless of whether he tried to bite him or use his mouth or anything. And then they would examine that and see if it was enough to warrant a, you know, a disqualification. Um, but you know, it's hard to tell from the video if he ever actually like, it seems like if he had gotten his way, we would, we would have seen something happen, you know, but Yalpon again, just maintained a straight line. Well, I shouldn't say that because, uh, assistant trainer Scott Blassie said he was actually more worried about the fact that they were angling toward the rail than any biting that might've happened. Cause, uh, Yalpon was kind of like angling a little bit away from frenzy fire. So if, if there had been some sort of contact, um, yeah, definitely you've got grounds for a DQ, but I, I'm to this day, I haven't seen that video many times. I'm not sure there really actually was any physical contact. It just looked, you know, weird and remarkable. And what is this horse thinking? And hope nobody gets hurt. And, um, but I don't think he, he never actually like got a hold of him at any point. So just, that was just, I mean, I didn't see, I didn't see a lot. I saw it in the replay. I was like, I, seen that in the years if you know watching horse that was just nuts i mean i just i there's no other way to describe it again yeah i've I've heard of it and i've seen it um you know on on video but again the fact that he just kept doing it and doing it and doing it (laughs) um when and uh that that was the what kind of made set this apart from other incidents like that yeah well here we are the final week of the uh meet uh which started wednesday and uh was uh Interesting races coming up on closing weekend, including for the first time, the Jockey Club Gold Cup is going to be run at Saratoga. Yeah, it's a great traditional historic race at Belmont Park. Um, New York Racing Association's motivation for moving it, flip-flopping it on the calendar with the Woodward, was to accommodate the horse. Some, you know, some horses that are trying to get to the Breeders' Cup Classic. The Jockey Club Gold Cup is designated as a win-and-you're-in qualifier for the Breeders' Cup Classic. So they were kind of, you know, these days, these horses space their races a little bit more than they used to, you know, say 20 years ago or so. So instead of having the Jockey Club Gold Cup at Belmont in October, you know, the first, first or second Saturday in October, whatever it is, they're having it at the end of the saratoga meet to, to kind of give them that little more extra couple weeks of uh, buffer between uh jockey club gold cup which is a mile and a quarter um and uh the breeders cup classics which will, would be the first saturday in november um not having benefit of seeing the draw yet i mean they're supposed to get like six or seven for the jockey club gold cup uh, so numbers wise i don't know if it's really the, the move is going to you know, create a bigger field or not. Um, the two that are in there that I'm kind of interested in are Max Player, who won the Suburban last time by a neck over Mystic Guide, who subsequently has been retired, and the third place horse in that race, Happy Saver, is going to run in the Jockey Club also. Uh, I talked to Todd Pletcher, the trainer, this morning, and uh, he thinks he'll, he'll definitely like the mile and a quarter. This is Happy Saver. This is a horse that was undefeated, had a strange season last year, didn't didn't um, start his career until June 20th of last year as a three-year-old and was undefeated and actually ran the Jockey Club Gold Cup, which you don't see three-year-olds. Well, I mean, you see them, but you don't see them win it that often. He won the Jockey Club Gold Cup in the, you know, the, the schedule that was really disrupted by the pandemic last year. So he kind of wound up in that race. And then um, uh, he suffered his first loss in the Suburban in July 
Um, but he'll be coming back in this race. And so those are kind of the two major players that are uh, set up for the Jockey Club Gold Cup. Also on the card is the Flower Bowl, which is uh, for fillies and mares on the turf. And that's a similar situation. They moved it to Saratoga. Usually it's at Belmont on Jockey Club Gold Cup Day. And and this is a win and you're in for the uh, filly and mare Breeders' Cup turf. Um, so we got two races on Saturday that will be Breeders' Cup qualifying races, and uh, and then plus the usual closing weekend two-year-old graded stakes are uh, the Spin Away on Sunday and the Hopeful on Labor Day, which is closing day. And then really looking forward to the Hopeful this year because Pletcher has a, a horse named Wit in there who um, has been very impressive in his two starts, including the Sanford on opening weekend at Saratoga. He's won both of his starts, uh, maiden race in June at Belmont and the Sanford by a combined 14 lengths, and he looks like the real deal. So we're really looking forward to see what he does on uh, Monday in the in the hopeful. Yeah, it's about that. And of course, uh, the jockey title looks like Luis Saez is going to win that one. The trainer's title, you know, Chad Brown leading, but we're, that's, that still looks like pretty tight. Not really. Um, I'm calling it. Um, I'm calling both of them. I, there's not going to be any drama. Um, over the weekend trying to track the, you know, except for second place, because even if Saez, I don't, you know, I don't know if he's going out of town to ride in any stakes races elsewhere, even if he leaves for a day, um, 13 is his lead over Irad Ortiz going into um, this final six days of racing, and Chad Brown's up nine on Todd Fletcher, who recently moved ahead of um, Michael Maker, who had been leading, like, pretty much for five weeks or so. Um, but nine is going to be really difficult to make up. You know, mathematically it's possible. Chad Brown has 34 to 25 for Pletcher. Um, but it's not like the jockeys who are in pretty much every race every day. You know, the trainers might have two or three in at most. So nine is a pretty, pretty, uh, substantial lead for Chad Brown in the trainer standings. And, and I'm calling the jockey race too. I mean, 13 is going to be. Again, it's mathematically possible, but Asayas is riding so well. He's riding in every race. Um, he's actually picked up some trainers, uh, mounts for trainers that typically would go to Irad and Jose Ortiz, really. And uh, so, thirteen is is pretty going to be pretty hard to beat. We'll keep an eye on it, though. Anyway, speaking of Asayas, uh, you you know he, he rode a race uh, for Friday night in what at uh, Charlestown. Uh, in West Virginia, <laughs> yeah. he back and what, what a little like mini two day saga that was for him. And uh, so he rides the full cart at Saratoga on Friday, the day before the Travers. He fly, he gets on a private jet, and flies to to West Virginia, wins the Charlestown Classic, eight hundred thousand dollar race on Art Collector. Um, and he said he was back at twelve thirty at night, back in Saratoga, um, the night before the Travers. Well, you know, early morning of. Um, his agent, Kieran McLaughlin, urged him not to work any horses Saturday morning, just stay in bed a couple extra hours. Man, he was all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed for the whole Travers card, which I, I think he only there was only one race that he didn't have a mount in, in the middle of the card. And, of course, we, we couldn't get him after he wins the Travers because he's got to go shower up and change because he's riding in the 13th race um and he came in last place in that race too but uh we intercepted him in the jockey's room uh, on his way back after the 13th race but he said no i'm fine i'm not tired or anything and and uh brad cox kind of joked also he's 
he said, oh, I was watching the Charlestown Classic last night, and all I was thinking was, I hope he's not working any horses. <laughs> and he wasn't. So um, that's what these guys do sometimes, though, uh, especially with these nighttime races. Um, uh, you know, if there's an opportunity out of, out of town and the travel isn't too uh, imposing, uh, they'll sneak out of here and, and go get some, some business elsewhere and then be back the next day. Um this this was a little different though, because because yeah. of the because it's the Travers and you know um, he made it though. Yeah, it all worked out, so everything everything's good. We can do it and win, and, and nobody's going to complain. We <laughs> 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 well, can follow Mike's coverage of the Travers uh, this uh, not the Travers but the Saratoga race uh, meet uh, this week. Uh, as always at Mike underscore Mac Adam. Uh, Mike, thanks again for coming on, and we'll wrap things up on uh, the podcast next week. Sounds good, Ken. Thanks for having me. The pro football season is here, and it's time to play the Daily Gazette You Pick'em Football Contest. Predict the winners of the weekly games via your You Pick'em online account. The fan with the most correct points each week gets his or her name in the Daily Gazette on Thursday and wins a $100 ShopRite grocery card. The fan with the most overall points after 23 weeks wins a $1,000 travel voucher and could win a trip to Hawaii. For official rules, go to dailygazette.com slash football. The You Pick'em Football Contest is run by the Daily Gazette Advertising Department and not associated with the Daily Gazette Sports Department. Hi, I'm Miles Reed, editor of the Daily Gazette, and you're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Welcome back to the podcast. The UAlbany football team opens its season Saturday at Football Championship Subdivision Powerhouse, North Dakota State. My next guest begins his eighth season as the head coach of the Great Danes. Please welcome Greg Catuzzo. Greg, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to be back. Thank you. Well, does it feel normal now back to sort of what it was two years ago and uh, compared to what yeah, everybody went through last last fall and then, and then early spring. Well, yeah, I mean, in, in compared to the, those situations, it's it's definitely about as close to normal as you could expect. I, you know, I look forward to the day when, for everybody's sake, the things are back to normal. But yeah, we're operating uh, pretty normally. The kids are, you know, doing well. Um, so we're we're excited about this week and uh, getting ready for this big game. Yeah, you tried playing uh, last uh, spring, uh, but. Injuries uh, played a factor, and you decided to shut it down. I mean, looking back at that now, is there any regrets of trying to play last year, trying to you know tw- play play a season in the spring? I don't really have any regrets either way. I, I think you know that um, we everybody felt the need to play. I think the kids wanted to play. Um, I, I think that the silver lining of the spring was that a lot of young guys got game experience. That uh, if we were walking into this game. We'd have a, a third of our team, or maybe half of our team, that didn't have snaps or game experience, and uh, that's invaluable. So, um, you know, there was good and bad uh, in the old thing. We we gave it our best. I think um, most importantly now we we've gotten some health back, and and uh, we're you know we're, we feel I feel good about where we're at physically right now, and you know, and, and when you play in, in the kind of conference we play in and the type of schedule we're playing this year, which has got to be one of the top couple hardest schedules in the country you know being healthy is going to be a big part of any chance of success and so we're working hard to to get ready for this game but also to take care of ourselves and get to get through this this tough season and i think but by 
the way the spring went, I think that we were able to get an early start on recovering. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that schedule. I, was, I said you open up at North Dakota State on Saturday, and a couple weeks later you're playing at Syracuse. Uh, what are the, how important are those games uh, as far as you know, preparing your team for uh, CAA play? Well, they're good games for preparation and playing in tough environments and playing in tough games. There's no question about it. It's one of the reasons, you know, I was all, all for the schedule and, and playing them. I, I think the hardest part of the schedule for us isn't that we're playing those two programs during the year. It's that the way the schedule's played out is we're playing four out of five on the road. And, and really, you know, all four FBS or FCS teams are going to be ranked when we play them and, and, uh, and then an ACC team. It's a tough start. It's a tough, you know, uh, first five games, but this, you know, again, the, the silver lining of that tough early part is we get four of our next six at home. So, you know, if we can, if we can play well and, and fight our way to some wins in these, these opening five games, uh, we'll have a shot to, to finish strong and make the playoffs. So I think that's our mindset is one at a time, stay healthy and, and go out there and try to get some wins. How tough will the, uh, Colonial Athletic Association be this year? It's, it's just, it's almost getting ridiculous how tough it is. You know, there's, it's so hard to predict. You see that every year the coaches, you know, try to make predictions. And, and um, you know, in 2019, we were picked last. We came in second. Um, it's very normal for whoever gets picked last to finish the year in the top five or six in our league. You just can't predict it. Um, you know, JMU certainly is, is a dynamite program and doing well. And, Delaware's joining them, but we have just everybody from top to bottom. All twelve teams can beat you. So, you know, we just—it's a one—it's really literally a, a one at a time. It's a little bit of a cliche, but it's the only way to survive in this league is to take them one at a time and and line up and, and play them and try to get wins because it's—it's—it is—it's a tough road every week. Yeah. Let's look at the team in particular. Quarterback Jeff Undercuffler. He had a great uh, 2019. Uh, leading you guys to the playoffs, but he, he had some you know, struggled a little bit in the spring and, and some injuries. Uh, what's his mindset going into uh, this season? Yeah, I, you know, I think Jeff's um, he's really put a few good practices together, probably five or six really good practices together here in a row, which is important. Um, I think that coincides with health coming back to the receiving core and the O line. You know. Most of camp, we were very shuffling guys in and out for a lot of different reasons, and I think that we're just now starting to settle um, into what our starting lineup's going to look like for North Dakota State, and I think that the you know, Jeff's played better when now that it's locked in a little bit. He knows his receivers. He knows who's lining up where. And, and he's looked really confident uh, and has really played well in the last five practices. So, I mean, that's a, that's a big bright spot from camp. And, and uh, we're really excited about getting into this week and see if he can push it even higher. How about the rest of the offense? Yeah, I mean, obviously Carl Mofar is a big part of it. It's one of the things in camp that's hard for the offense is I don't let Carl – carry the ball a lot in live scrimmages you know and he's he's got a lot of carries under his belt we know he knows what to do um we're definitely trying to settle on a second team running back right now um so we're working those guys but when you take an all-american out of your offense it certainly hurts and um he you know the offense has had to try to survive without him in practice but um carl's a big part of what we're doing i think you know we're starting to settle into the o-line group in that um with you know we're we're athletic we're a little young in spots but but um we feel good about our lines i think the o-line at the end of the year is going to be a lot better than they are in the beginning of the year just because they're young and and improving and uh, i i see really good things for our future on the o-line because we have a bunch of good young players 
and the receiving core is really coming together. I mean, I'm, I'm excited, and I think we have very good tight ends. So the offense has a chance to be good. Um, they just got to get out there and, and uh, compete against, a, a, you know, a really top-tier defense. And speaking of defense, talk about your defense. How are they looking going into the game Saturday? Yeah, you know, we kind of start with the front, and, you know, we're – we feel really good about our defensive front. We've got a ton of experience and, and some big playmakers there. Uh, the linebacker, you know, I always say depth, you know, strength down the middle in all sports is important. And I think, you know, we have we have strength in our defensive tackle spots, our middle linebacker spots. Both Danny D'Amico and and Jackson Ambush are very good players, and then our safeties, um, Tyler Carswell and Larry Walker, are very experienced. So, you know, we have a lot of experience on defense, and we're going to really rely on them. They're going to be really challenged in that first game. Um, with the with what North Dakota State does, and, and the new transfer quarterback from uh, Virginia Tech is very talented. So, um, but that group is is good and talented, and they're going to have to stand up and play well. How exciting is it going to be to play in front of fans again? Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward. I know their fans are rabid fans up there, and they're right on top of you. And, you know, our kids. You know. We, We'd be talking to them this week, but not responding to the fans because they're going to be yelling at them, and they're right there. But that's—I've always found that to be fun. Ever since I was a football player, I love going around and being around the other team's fans because it's—it's uh, interesting. You know, I've, I've been called some really cool names uh, over the years <laughs> by the opposing fans, so I always look forward to some creativity from from them. And I know the North Dakota State fans are really, uh, uh, really strong. Of course, you can't mention some of those uh, names in public because it's been too, probably Felix lives in there. <laughs> well, interesting that you know I have never been called Greg or anything like that, so it's uh, it's certainly not Greg or Gattuso or Coach. Sometimes Coach, but it's usually followed by another word you can't say on the radio. So um, right. I'm, I'm used to it, and, and I actually really I really do enjoy the fans at opposing at opposing sites. Yeah. Well, Greg, appreciate a few minutes. Uh, good luck on Saturday and good luck this season. Uh, we look forward to uh, seeing what the uh, Great Danes can do in 2021. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, that's Greg Gattuso. Coming up, we'll talk Major League Baseball with John Paul Morosi of MLB Network. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. Sign up for the Daily Gazette Sports Newsletter. The newsletter, which comes out Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, features updates on the local sports scene from our staff writers and reveals the latest guests for the Parting Shots podcast. The newsletter is free. To sign up, head to dailygazette.com. It's been a trying year for parents. They've been confronted with countless challenges and have always risen to the occasion. If it isn't too much to ask, the 370,000 high school student athletes in New York have one last request. Please, set an example. Disorderly fan conduct at high school athletic events is on the rise. It increasingly involves parents. There's no question that parents are passionate. There's no question they care about their children. But at a time when we're all wound a little more tightly than usual, it's worth remembering this about New York high school sports. Always be a good example. Stop unruly fan behavior before it starts. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Hi, 
This is Albany Empire quarterback Tommy Grady. You're listening to Parting Shot Podcast with Danny Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Shot. Welcome back to the podcast. It's the month of September. It's time for this baseball stretch drive. A lot of exciting playoff uh, action going going to happen down the stretch here, and uh, some other big baseball news. And joining us to talk about that from MLB Network and along with uh, the NHL Network, uh, my good friend John Paul Morosi. John, uh, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. How are things going? Ken, always love hearing your voice, my friend. Brings us back to a lot of great memories covering uh, RPI Union games. Oh, my gosh, it was about, what, 15, 16 years ago now. Uh, but college hockey, as you know, is still near and dear to my heart. And uh, being back now in my home state of Michigan, boy, this Michigan Wolverines team is going to be something else to watch this season. So can't wait for hockey to get going. And uh, what a great couple months we have coming up. The, the culmination of baseball and the beginning of hockey. Yeah. Speaking of Michigan, uh, your home state uh, won the Little League World Series uh, this past Sunday. How thrilling was that? Oh, it's incredible. So I was there in Williamsport uh, for the MLB Little League Classic for the fourth installment of it, which is always one of my favorite events to cover, Ken, just the enthusiasm that both the Major League players have and the Little League players and their families. So especially in these unique times, just to be able to get back together again after not being able to have it uh, in 2020 was really special. And then, you know, for, for me to see the, the young team from Taylor North, Taylor, Michigan, which is really close to a, a great hockey town in Michigan, in Trenton, uh, Trenton, Michigan is right there in the downriver area just south of Detroit. And so I was able to chat with uh, Rick Thorning, one of the coaches, and uh, meet him and uh, wish them well. And, of course, back then it was still very early on, Ken, in the preliminary stage of the tournament. So uh, to then follow that team and, and, and to get a big win over Ohio in the, in the World Series championship game, certainly, as, as you well know, uh, wins for Michigan over great teams from Ohio have been uh, pretty scarce in football. So for, uh, yeah. for us to win the Little League World Series, especially against Ohio, was pretty special. And uh, what a great job the Tigers did to bring uh, the Taylor North Little League there and, and celebrate at Comerica Park here this week. So just a great story all the way around. And, and Michigan's second Little League World Series champs following the great team of Tom Pachorek from Hamtramck Little League back in 1959. Wow. So some great history there, sure, as well. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the Major League situation here. And first of all, let's focus on a team that has a little – Issue with the fans, or some of the players have an issue with the fans. The New York Mets, uh, what we witnessed Sunday with Javi Baez and Lindor and uh, Pilar with the thumbs down uh, after hitting home runs, and they're, they're, that's what, that was their way of saying they were booing the fans for booing them. How moronic was it for them to do it? I mean, obviously they apologized on Tuesday, but it, coming off a year where we didn't have fans in the stands, you're going to you know, rip the fans for booing you? Well, uh, it's a very fair point, and there's a lot going on there, Ken. First of all, to your point, it's been a disappointing year for the New York Mets, and th- that's the number one thing they have to address is their performance on the field. Javier Baez is coming up on free agency. He is striking out at a very high rate. He has to address that. Lindor's had a very poor first season with the Mets. He has to address that. At the end of the day, your, your performance is your salvation, and when, when they won a dramatic game earlier this week, with Baez scoring the winning run, guess what? The New York fans cheered, and that's what they're going to do. This is a results-based enterprise, and I, I do think, Ken, that the, the fans there have their right to express their opinions as, as they wish, and the, fan, and the players have to understand that. The players have to understand that that's part of the way that the dynamic works, Ken, is that the fans pay their money and the players play, and the fans get to express their opinion 
if they don't like what's happening. That is the dynamic of professional sports. That's how it works. And, and as we know, Ken, from having covered the games, uh, the sports, as long as we have, you never win when you criticize the fans. You never win. It's just it, there's never a way to win that argument. Even if you think you win, you don't win. And so I think Francisco and Javi are, are two passionate players, two smart players. They've been around this league for a long time, and and they need to, to handle things a little bit differently going forward. I think they will. And at the end of the day, you have to play better as a team, and that will eventually win the fans over it. All the fans want to do is the same thing that you want. You both want to win. And I think this was a pretty profound education in the New York fans for two players who are new to the city in, in many ways, in Lindor and Baez. And, and the difference there is that Lindor has this long-term deal, Ken, where he has got to figure this thing out. This is a $340 million deal. He has to he has to find the answers here because uh, that contract and all that money and the pressure is not going away anytime soon. Yeah, it almost reminds me of the uh, Bobby Bonilla situation when he signed with the Mets as a free agent and he went after the media and then that ended up uh, you know, a losing proposition in a sense. But of course, he still gets paid every July first by the Mets, so maybe in a way he wins. But it seems like you don't you don't as you say you don't win because I mean the media is going to be on your case and the fans are. Not going to forget. I mean, I'm from Philadelphia, and trust me, we're we're tough fans of Philadelphia. We we booed Mike Schmidt. We we booed Santa Claus for crying out loud. Uh, right. So uh, it's just I me. Mean, I think it's really it had, had like I said, it hadn't been brought up. But I think the fact that we didn't have fans in the stands last year because of the pandemic, it seems like the, the players should be more appreciative and understanding that these fans want to see this, this team win. I mean, the expectations were there. You have a new owner who's willing to spend money, which he did with Lindor. And, yeah, and of course, you've had injuries. You know, you know, Noah Syndergaard hasn't pitched all year. Jacob deGrom, uh, who knows what his situation is going to be. And so it's I guess it's a combination of the frustration of that and some of the poor play where the Mets were in first place, and now they're you know, trying to stay alive in the wild card. You're right. Exactly right. No, It's all very well said, Ken. And to me, the Mets' chances now at making the playoffs are very remote. Candidly, they are, even after winning a couple games here in doubleheader this week. So, for me, it's all about the, the what's in front of these two players right now is Lindor has to get some momentum entering next year. He can prove a lot. If he comes back and has a big September and shows that he's the player they acquired and, and has a lot of energy back in his game and some production at the plate – then a lot of these distractions will go away. He just has to play. That's it. And, and he has to do what he's always done in Cleveland, play his game. Baez has a lot riding on this. He is going to be a free agent. And as brilliant of a defensive player as he is, Ken, if he keeps striking out all these times, uh, his value is not going to be nearly where it should be as a player. So I think both players have a lot in front of them to play for, even if this team misses the playoffs, which, candidly, I expect they will miss the playoffs. They have to realize just what's in front of them and that they're, uh, I know as the great Tyler Kepner once wrote of, of uh, Gary Sheffield years ago, and it's true of these players too, there's plenty of ink in your bat. You can write the story you want with how you play. And I believe that's the case for both Lindor and Baez here the final weeks of the season. Yeah. Uh, looking at these races here, I mean, it looks like in the American League, the divisions is just about wrap up Tampa Bay in the East, White Sox in the Central, and uh, Houston in the West. But the wild cards is an interesting situation. The Yankees have played themselves into it. In fact, they're the top wild card team. Uh, Boston, which had been in first place earlier in the season, is you know, hanging on for dear life in the second wild card spot. How do you see this playing out in the American League? 
Well, it's going to be very interesting. I think Ken, a lot of intriguing teams to follow. I, I've been saying for a long time, I believe the White Sox are the best team in the American League. Now, they don't have the best record right now. In fact, they only have the third or fourth best record at the moment behind Tampa, the Astros, and then they're very close in winning percentage to the Yankees. But the White Sox, to me, with their bullpen, once they get all the roles organized, this is going to be a dynamic team to deal with in the month of October. You've got Michael Kopech who's in a multi-inning role. Reynaldo Lopez can do the same thing. You've got Bummer from the left side, Crochet from the left side. You have Kimbrell and Hendricks in the eighth and ninth. This is a dominant bullpen with a very good rotation led by Lynn and Giolito and Rodon, Dallas Keuchel. It's a really good group. So I think that Tony La Russa as well, with having all that experience, the White Sox are still my pick to win the American League. And you look at the Tampa Bay Rays, Ken, it's a different team to the one that made the World Series last year. They have a better lineup. But more questions in the rotation. There is no longer a Blake Snell. There's no longer a Charlie Morton. There's no longer a Tyler Glasnow who's up for the season. It's going to be a younger group led by the likes of Shane McClanahan and Luis Patino. They have to find a way to get more and more contributions from some younger pitchers if they want to find a way to beat, uh, for example, the Yankees, who they may face in round one. The Yankees as the wild card team, the likely first wild card team, if they win that wild card game and face Tampa, that's going to be a very different matchup in a five-game series between the Rays and the Yankees this time around. I, I might even pick the Yankees if they end up uh, with that matchup because of the way that Garrett Cole has pitched of late and the way the Yankees have played in general. So it's going to be a lot of fun down the stretch, even with that eight-game lead for Tampa Bay. I think the Yankees have an excellent opportunity to, to find a way to get past Tampa in the first round of the playoffs. You know, in the National League, uh, the NL Central is just about wrapped up in Milwaukee. Uh, I mean, I look at the NL East, my Phillies are just two and a half back as we speak on this Wednesday uh, behind the Braves. I mean, they stumble a little bit, and now they're back on a five-game winning streak. Uh, their game Wednesday night against Washington was rained out. Uh, but uh, how do you see this NL East shaping up? Uh, can, can the Phillies, uh, you know, despite not having Reese Hoskins, despite having an inconsistent pitching staff and a bullpen that's blown too many saves this year, I mean, can they catch the Braves? I don't think they will. I candidly expect the, the, the Braves to win this division, Ken, but certainly the Phillies have made things very interesting. And I, I give a lot of credit to someone that we somehow don't talk about as much as we should. That's Bryce Harper. Harper's had a really good year this year, yeah. and he's done it quietly. We haven't celebrated him as much as we used to in the past, and, and here he is with one of his more consistent, productive years of his career. So I really give Bryce a lot of credit. You know, He's come in with a lot of different pressures on him, and I think he has really handled himself with with a lot of class this year, and, and certainly he's played tremendously well. He's leading the major leagues in OPS at 1,014. That's a tremendous, tremendous year for Bryce Harper, who's not getting enough credit. So uh, I, I think overall he's, he's played very well. Aaron Nola, certainly we've seen him still rack up a lot of strikeouts. Zach Wheeler's been very good. If there's a way, Ken, for this team to make the playoffs, I think Joe Girardi's going to find it. Joe is one of the best in the majors at handling a bullpen, and so I would say the bullpen struggles of the Phillies have not been the fault of their manager. Joe knows what to do. It's just the pieces have not been 
quite as he expected. And I would also give a lot of credit as we talk about the Phillies and how they've, they've played this year. I give credit to, to the moves that Dave Dombrowski and Sam Fold made with Kyle Gibson. Kyle Gibson's come in and pitched, I think, really well. Yeah. He's not a big strikeout guy, but he gets the job done for you. And I think we've even seen some other contributions with the bullpen. I think Ranger Suarez has pitched pretty well there. Uh, Neris has had kind of an up-and-down year as a reliever, but I, I like what I've seen from, from some of the guys that are rounding into form. So I think they'll play better down the stretch, Ken, but not quite be good enough to pass up the Atlanta Braves. I hate you, John. <laughs> I'm just giving you my honest assessment, Ken. You know me. We've been friends for a long time. I'm always going to be honest with you. I know. I appreciate that. Now, the National League West, I mean, suddenly the uh, San Francisco Giants are slumping, and they, their once uh, seemingly a nice lead is down to half again as we speak here on this Wednesday over the Dodgers. Uh, and Gabe Kapler is a manager of that San Francisco team, and his two years in the Phillies, they always faded down the stretch. I mean, is, are we seeing this again with the Giants and, and Kapler? Well, Ken, it's a, it's a fair question. I, I think this, that if you had asked any independent observer in baseball on April 1st, who do you think is going to have a better team, the Dodgers or the Giants, they would probably say the Dodgers. And here on September 1st, I would give you the same answer. It's still the Dodgers. They're the, most, they're the more talented team. Now, they've had injury issues all season long, it seems, and even the guys that have been healthy, like Bellinger, haven't really had a classic Bellinger-like season. And so now that they have this cast of, of players all together. Trey Turner is part of the mix. And Max Scherzer. And they hope to get Kershaw back. And Julio Urias has pitched so well for that franchise the last several years. This is a team, Ken, that, that I think is one of the more talented and accomplished groups we have ever seen in the history of the game. And so now with only a, a half game deficit and one month to play, do I think the, the Dodgers will play a game or two better than Giants from now to the end of the season? Yeah, I do. I do. They're, they're just a better team. And the run differential backs that up. Well, look at, I think they're plus 200 right now, which is just an extraordinary run differential on the positive side for the Los Angeles Dodgers. So I believe the Dodgers win the division. The Giants finish a close and very respectable second. And then the question is going to be, who do the Giants play in the, in the wild card game? Is it going to be the Padres or the Reds? And, and the Reds have been, I think, the more consistent team during the course of the year. The Padres have had some wild fluctuations in their performance. I, I do think the Reds, with the benefit of the lighter schedule down the stretch, will find a way to get in, and it's going to be the Giants and the Reds uh, facing off in the NL wild card game. One thing I wanted to address with you, getting back to the Red Sox here a little bit in the American League East and the wild card. Now they have a COVID situation. Several players have been out now with COVID. When is Major League Baseball going to, or can they address it and say, look, it's time for these players to get vaccinated and because it's a safety issue now. I mean, are they waiting for, are some of these Major League teams waiting for a teammate to die from COVID before we finally get some common sense? Well, Ken, here's what I would say. Number one, uh, the, the protocols are in place. They've been collectively bargained between MLB and the union. That's number one. And so uh, while there may be some, some common sense regulations that you and I would see here, the reality is that there is a, uh, a labor relations and a collective bargaining agreement that is in play here, and, and everything has to be worked out through the union. There are, notably, different protocols between uh, between players who are vaccinated and unvaccinated, and I would point out as well that a number of players who are 
who are vaccinated have tested positive for COVID because of the contagious nature of the Delta variant and and the reduced efficacy of, of the vaccine in preventing that if, the, if there are no other mitigation strategies there, which is why a lot of the, the distancing, social distancing and, and uh, other protocols, including masking, are very wise strategies right now to, to reinstitute them. So I, I think the teams that do not have uh, universal vaccination within their playing populations will likely continue to have positive cases if they are not also coupling the vaccinations, which work, by the way, uh, with other with other uh, strategies such as distancing and mas- masking. These are all things that have to be uh, used in concert with one another. And you look at the CDC's recommendations when it relates to masking uh, indoors as well. So uh, there has to be a comprehensive solution thrown at, at, at this issue that is obviously still uh, very problematic for, for the, our country and the world, and, and it's going to continue to be a problem and as long as there are variants out there and as long as uh, strategies are, are, are not comprehensive enough to, to, to really match it. So I, I think we all know what the science is. We all should know what the science is and take the steps in accordance with that. And I, I hope that more and more players get the vaccine. And I also hope that more and more teams adopt strategies, including masking and distancing, to help reduce the likelihood of possible infections now going forward. Let's uh, wrap this up with a hockey question for you. It's nice to have the NHL back to an 82-game season uh, this coming uh, season. And it's hard to believe the puck drops in about a month for the regular season. Of course, we're going to see uh, games on ESPN, TNT, which is a, a great thing. Uh, what, what's your outlook on the season? I mean, you know, Tampa Bay lost some key components uh, from their Stanley Cup team. Can they do a three-peat? Well, great question, Ken. It's going to be a tough matchup, I think, for the Lightning, and one of the reasons why is just how good their division is. Now, certainly I expect them to be able to make the playoffs. Uh, they're an outstanding team and, and have been one now, obviously, back-to-back Cup champions to win it, and that, and that fashion is pretty remarkable. But you look at just how good that division is, the Atlantic division, and all, all the, the up-and-coming talents there, and then you think about the, the Florida Panthers, how well they've played in the last couple of years. I think they're going to have a strong team this year. Uh, they have to also deal with the Maple Leafs, who we know are a very good team, and if, if Tavares hadn't gotten hurt, maybe they'd find a way to beat the Canadiens in the first round. The Canadiens, oh, by the way, are part of that division. Mm-hmm. The Boston Bruins are part of that division. So you've got a lot of really competitive teams that you have to deal with all at the same time, and that's why uh, here in Michigan it's going to be a long road for the wings to find a way to get back uh, up the ranks of the playoff teams because just how good that division is. I, the team I'm looking at the most as this year gets underway, Ken, is the Colorado Avalanche, a, a team that had to now look at some different uh, mixes in, in, in goal and find different uh, positional uh, challenges there. They had to extend Landis Cog. This is a team that I really think uh, the Colorado Avalanche are, are poised to win. I thought they were going to win last year. They were everybody's pick, or at least they were my pick to win, and they didn't get it done. This has to be their year. They have to find a way to get better uh, performance of the goaltending spot, and, and I think they, they look at Kemper and think that he's the answer. That has to be where the focus is for this team. So I'm going to go all in to the Avalanche. This is going to be their year. Nathan McKinnon, Lannis Cog, Kale McCarr in the back end. They've got so much talent back there. And I think a lot of pressure now is on, the, is on the Darcy Kemper to put together a brilliant year because all the other pieces are in place for the Avalanche to win the Stanley Cup. You can follow John Morosi on uh, Twitter at, at John Morosi, J-O-N-M-O-R-O-S-I. John, I appreciate it once again, my friend. Uh, let's talk, uh, keep in touch, and we'll you know, talk some hockey and maybe some college hockey down the road. 
Sounds great, Ken. I look forward. I'll be reading your coverage of the Dutchman here in the in the coming season and uh, thinking about those great nights in the ECAC. A lot of great memories, my friend. So uh, all the best to your family and everybody in the capital region here for a great fall and a great school year ahead. The same to you, John Quish. I know your wife works as a nurse and uh, she's been dealing with, with a lot of this. And then she's, I, you know, I know you're proud of what she's done. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Yeah, I'm very proud of her and uh, certainly uh, all the healthcare workers out there, all the frontline workers, uh, thinking all of all of them here as we move forward into the fall as well. So th- thanks for mentioning that, Ken. Really appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thanks, John Morosi. I'll be back to wrap up the podcast and have the latest winner in the Daily Gazette Auto Racing Contest in just a moment. The NASCAR season is here, and it's time to play the Daily Gazette's Auto Racing Contest. Go to dailygazette.com to sign up and play. Predict the order of finish of each race via your auto racing account. The fan with the most correct points for the race will win a $50 grocery card and have their name mentioned on the Party Shots podcast and printed in Friday's Daily Gazette. The fan with the most overall points at the end of the season wins a $250 grocery card. You can also win a $75 Visa gift card provided by Second Street if you're the weekly national winner. If you are the overall national winner, you will win a trip for two to the 2022 Daytona 500. So go to dailygazette.com, sign up, and play today. The Daily Gazette Auto Racing Contest is run by the Daily Gazette Advertising Department and not associated with the Daily Gazette Sports Department. Hi, this is RPI men's hockey coach Dave Smith. And you are listening to the Parting Shots podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Back to wrap up the podcast. The Week 25 winner in the Daily Gazette Auto Racing Contest is Aaron Compani of Amsterdam. Aaron wins a $50 grocery gift card. Congratulations, Aaron. The VIP winner was Scott Lucier of Capital Land GMC. I'll be announcing the weekly winner of the contest, and that winner's name will appear in Friday's Daily Gazette. If you would like to play the contest, go to dailygazette.com and click on the link for contest and promotions. Keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you are doing in this difficult time. If you have not gotten vaccinated, please do so. Do it for yourself, do it for your family, and do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I would like to thank Mike McAdam, Greg Catuso, and John Paul Morosi for coming on the show. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports, and rest in peace, Ed Asner.